0: This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com Welcome everyone. Uh, For the people that are in the audience that would like to speak to me, you can simply Google me as Dr. Jack Cohen, dating coach, and I'll be happy to answer your questions from anywhere in the world to help you in anything you need help with in terms of Shadduch HaMashalom B'ayis or any relationships that you're in. Because I've been seeing so many cases recently, if people want to get divorced, I thought I'd talk about this subject of what is love and how do we become one. It's, a sh- it's really hurtful when I have to deal with people who I know for 30 plus years that uh, come and tell me that their wife just left to go on vacation on their own without taking the spouse with them. And, so, uh, and things like that that have been happening recently. So I thought I'd speak about tonight. What is the Jewish perspective of being married? What is love according to us? Words cannot really define happiness. Happiness is an emotional state and needs, it needs to be experienced to be understood. Love may be defined, how hear you, as having positive feelings for someone else. Affection, admiration, common interests. You need to have common interests. That's so important. Others define love as warm attachment, enthusiasm, or devotion. Let's look and see what happened with Yitzchak Avinu. How the Torah describes his feelings for Rivka, when he read that he first married her, and then he loved her. Right? It says he married her, and then we have we also find in the Torah that Yaakov loved Rachel right from the first moment he saw her, which motivated him to agree to work for seven years for her father, so that he would consent to their marriage. The Rechaim comments that the source of Yaakov's love for Rachel was that she felt, this is my life partner. Thus in the Torah we find various possibilities for what love is. It could either be Yitzchak who first married his wife and then grew to love her, and then you have Yaakov's situation where Yaakov loved her from the start. In the blessings that we recite under the Chuppah, it says, Sameach to Samach, Re'aim May you Hashem grant tremendous joy to these wonderful friends, the chassan and couple being the best friends for each other. May you cause to rejoice these two wonderful people to love each other. Rashi explains what this means in the Gemara. This refers to the groom and the bride who are friends and who love each other. They are designated as partners to fulfill their life's mission. When you know you're marrying someone who will bring out the best in you, Then you know you're on the right track. But I had a conversation with a 40-year-old woman, a doctor, Monday night, who wants my opinion if I think this is the guy that's right for her. Do you think about him? Sometimes. Do you ever love him? I do sometimes, but I don't trust him. This is someone she's dating for three years. You don't trust him? Is he observant? Not really, but he says he'll do it for me. Do you see anything here that would warrant that they should ever be with each other? But people sustain these kind of relationships for years. It's terrible. It's gotten to the point where there's such bad dynamics in the home that the father won't go to Shul on Shabbos because he's embarrassed of his daughter, the 40-year-old daughter who sits at home and not married. It's really, sometimes things get really spun out of control. So now, what is love? For us, it's simple. We look at the Hebrew word, which is Ahava. We take out the shorish which is Hav. And we understand that the root of love is giving. Hav means to give. It's a valuable concept that works both ways. We want to give to the person we love. It is also true that when we constantly give to someone, it increases our positive feelings for that person, which is why we love our babies more than anything, because we're constantly giving to them. Regardless of how anyone else defines it, what will count for you is your understanding and how you experience the emotion. A marriage in which both the husband and wife feel a strong sense of love for each other has a better chance of going going smoothly if those feelings last. I had a case recently where a man's son came home from yeshiva had a serious gambling debt. A six-figure gambling debt. Not a good idea to get into a debt in, in Israel when it's something known as the Israeli mafia. So anyway... The husband, I mean the father and the mother had a nest egg that they couldn't put aside for the girl's wedding. Unfortunately, he tapped into it without telling the wife to pay off the gambling debt so that uh, the, 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 the the son's life shouldn't be jeopardized in any fashion. That tripped off the whole Shalom Bias issue because she wasn't told. And when he told her what it was all about, she got upset. And now I'm trying to restore the Shalom bias there, but it's been pretty messy since. But if there's a unity of one, and we think to each other, and we think alike, and we're like, one should be understanding, or at least a little bit forgiving. In this case, the wife has not been forgiving at all. Okay. The wording in Mishlei is, Love will cover up all problems, all mistakes. All criminal offenses. All faults. That regardless of the faults that someone has, if you love that person, you'll focus not on what you don't like, but what you do like. And this is Ikari Karim. When I deal with couples all the time, and I am deal with dating people all the time. I say to them, no one is perfect. Focus on the positive. Everyone has negatives. Do a cheshbin of the positive and the negative when you're dating. And if the positives outweigh the negatives... And your needs are covered because you've created a top 10 list. This is something that I do for so many people. I help them draft a top 10 list of needs, not wants. I'm a very big, big proponent of the top 10 needs list. You sit down with someone who's a third party, and they help you draft a top 10 needs list of needos. Wants are not needs. A want is tall, dark, handsome, green eyes, blonde hair, money in the bank, apartment in Miami Beach, those are, those are superficial. That's not going to make you happy. Needs for a girl and a guy is, has a rebbe is growing spiritually, is kind and considerate, is working hard for making a living, doesn't have a, an issue of his anger, arrogance, is flexible. And for a, a guy, he's looking for a girl that's a balabusta a little bit, does not a, uh, doesn't have a dominating, mean, biting personality, kind, warm is involved in the home, loves children, you've got to know what your needs are. When you know what your needs are, you have a GPS for where you're going in life. And that GPS sustains you through rough times of life. And the Mishnah tells us that you've got to weigh the positive over the negative. It can be understood by thinking of a beautiful expensive carpet covering a floor that has many scratches and spots. Even if you always remember the scratches and the spots, when you look at the floor, you'll see the beautiful designs and colors that are on the carpet. So two, when you have strong feelings of love, when you're thinking only of the positive, you might still know that a person has faults, but you'll see the qualities that you like and respect and don't worry about the faults so much. You've got to learn. You know Benjamin Franklin was a smart man. He said when you're dating, keep both eyes wide open and after you get married close one. When a husband and wife feel positively about each other, even such issues as where they live become secondary. Case one. Here's a woman who writes, I appreciated being married to my husband so much when we first got married that I kept saying, I don't care where I live as long as it's with him. Hello, how are you? But Hashem tested me. The first apartment we rented had three rooms, but then for financial considerations, we moved to a apartment that had only one room. My husband and I lived in that one room apartment for three years. And I'm happy to say that if we lived in a magnificent mansion, we couldn't have been happier. Yes, every time I needed to put a load of clothes in the washing machine, we had to move the machine out of the tiny corner it was squeezed into. When we had guests, we had to turn the table to a different angle to make enough room. But we enjoyed each other's company. That's the key. We studied together. And we had many enjoyable discussions. It was all about enjoying each other's company so that we were not concerned so much with the material, with the physical stuff. We viewed our tiny apartment as a wonderful introduction to married life. We felt that when we would eventually move into a larger apartment, we would enjoy it so much more than if we had just started out in a large apartment. They focused on the positive. Here's another case. I was anorexic. And so embarrassed about it that I did everything I could to hide my eating disorder from my closest friends. My weight was about standard for my height, so no one noticed that anything was wrong with me. I lived with a dread during the first four years of my anorexia. I wondered how a prospective husband would react to my condition. I asked a rabbi and was told that I should reveal the information only after we met three or four times. Which makes sense. I always often tell people if there's an issue... First try to see if you can connect with the individual, and then you can hit them with the news. And if I thought there was a good chance we would get married, and that's exactly what I did. I followed the rabbi's advice, I waited until date number four before I sprang the news on him that I suffered from anorexia. My future husband reacted calmly. I've kind of heard about that, he said, but I really don't know very much about it. You look healthy to me and I feel that whatever it takes to deal with it, I'll help you. I had dreaded this moment for five years, to my great relief, my husband to be handled it remarkably well. He told me that his love for me was because of my Torah ideals and positive character qualities. I couldn't stress enough how important that is. Physical attraction is what lights the match. How long does that take when you light a match? That's it. Three, four seconds. It is absolutely not the glue to the relationship. It's just the starter. But here, here was a person who looked beyond that and saw that the emotional connectivity was great. That is the key. That is the glue to a great relationship. And he tells that because of your Torah ideals and positive character qualities, one of the most important things that I tell people who are in front of me, that come to me for dating consultations or will call me from anywhere in the world, I ask them, does the person that you're dating have simcha sechayim? Does that person have a happy disposition towards life? Does that person see the glass is half full? If that's the case, you've got the makings of a great relationship because that's going to go for long term. Because life is going to have its vicissitudes, its ups and its downs. Look for someone who's optimistic, who's buoyant, who after a fall bounces back up quickly. He looked at my challenge to conquer anorexia as a partnership and he was glad to do anything for me that he would be helpful. This is the man who understood what marriage is about. It's not I and you. It's rather we. We. He saw it as a team. After we were married, he handled it even better. You might have negative associations with anorexia, but I don't, he reassured me. We will find an expert on eating disorders, and you will do whatever needs to be done. I'm behind you, and I want you to be physically healthy and emotionally healthy. I love you just the same whether or not you would overcome this or anything else. That's how to win her love forever. My husband's wonderful attitude gave me the strength to consult a professional. My husband didn't push or pressure me, but he gave me only gentle encouragement. As the Torah tells us, (inaudible) Its ways are ways of pleasantness. (inaudible) And all its paths lead to peace. It should be done gently. His unconditional love enabled me to make progress much more quickly than I had thought possible. My husband sincerely reiterated that I should feel shouldn't feel any pressure at all. I didn't, and this was the greatest help that he could ever have given me. Maintaining love when your husband and wife does not talk to you the way they should is difficult. If they don't talk to you with respect, they could certainly challenge. Your, your, your relationship. Maintaining love and respect when we feel unloved or disrespected is hard. But it's the wisest course of action. We all want to be loved and respected. And that's a basic universal need. Responding to a lack of love with anger or resentment or animosity and hatred will only increase those qualities in that person. You're only egging him on or her on to even act that way more, worse. More. And we don't certainly want to do that. you're only increasing the probability that you'll be on the receiving end of more abuse. If you can lift yourself and don't get dirty, transcend yourself above that if they're screaming at you, if they're saying hurtful words, and reflect sincere love and respect to someone who's lacking that feeling towards you, you're going to get what you want. As they say, kill them with kindness. Mishle tells us, Proverbs, one of the greatest sfarim written by Shlomo Amelach, the wisest of all. As water reflects a face back to a face, so one's heart is reflected back to him by the other person's heart. What would you like to see reflected back to you when you look in a pond? A smile or an angry face? A smile or a frown? It's your choice. Whatever you wish to see, that is the model of what you need to project. So learn to smile all the time and make it... Regular, a fixture on your face. This is the secret of how to influence your spouse to always feel positively towards you. No matter what goes on, you're always reflecting happiness and joy. My Rabbi Victor Miller would always tell us he was a great Gadol Hador. Our lives are like theatrical plays. And when we leave this world after 120 years, the curtain will come down on our life. There'll be one personality in the audience clapping, saying you did a great job, great performance, and that'll be God. Our job in this world is to prolong on a theatrical performance that's good. And to learn how to act, but not, not faking that you're not someone you're not, but you have to transcend your negativity. You have to transcend your depression by f- by working on yourself. Now, even if you don't want to be like that, you don't want to be altruistic, or you don't want to be so high and mighty with your values. You ought to choose respect and kindness because it's, the, it's in your self-interest. Act in ways that are more, most likely to get you what you want. Causing pain by hitting slamming back through words or deeds, whether it's your dating partner or, or your spouse, will only create a negative loop. Like an echo and a boomerang, what you send out will come back right to your face. Consistently talking and acting with love and respect and admiration and courtesy, even if the other individual isn't doing that to you, will only encourage those feelings in return. But you ask yourself, what if they don't? First of all, you have nothing to lose to try. What do you mean I have nothing to lose? Don't I make myself vulnerable if I act nice and they don't? It's a common question. Although this question is common, there's no basis for it in reality. Whether or not you perceive yourself as vulnerable is your choice. When you act in an elevated manner, and you maintain your derech eretz, and you maintain your dignity and your nobility, you raise your level. Even if you didn't presently get what you wished for, but your gains spiritually are eternal because you didn't subject yourself and lower yourself to their level. To their level. When you, however, go the opposite route and increase resentment and bitterness. You're making yourself vulnerable to all types of psychosomatic and spiritual ills. Again, Rav to tell us the number one cause for diabetes is anger. How many times can you take that delicate balance of sugar and disrupt it with a violent episode of anger? Our, our bodies are very delicate, the, the hormonal mechanisms that run our body are very sensitive. You can disrupt it only so much before you trigger a psychosomatic response to the body. Many of the problems that we have in our lives, many of the medical conditions, I can tell you as an MD, are because people get on physiologically from emotional states that are not healthy. Because when you, resent, when you increase resentment and bitterness, you will act and react badly, harshly, loudly, Violently. I will be creating a problematic loop which is not good for the marriage and certainly not good for your health. By increasing and strengthening your love and respect, you're increasing your own emotional health. Even if the other person doesn't change for the better, and this is not just limited to marriage and dating, but can be to any aspect of your life, even in business, even if the other person doesn't change for the better, you have won a tremendous victory. You didn't lower yourself. How do we increase feelings of love and respect for the person that we're dating and the person that we're married to? How do we create love and respect for that person if the feelings don't come spontaneously? Since the Torah commands us to love people, it's clear that there must be something we can do to create and increase these feelings. If the Torah tells us, you should love your friend or your fellow Jew as yourself, that means it's legislating that it's doable. Otherwise, it wouldn't tell us to do it. You hear that? Okay. It's a common error to think that either we will love someone spontaneously, or our positive feelings won't be there. That means I can't do anything actively to promote feelings of love, which is erroneous. What can we do? When you focus on the positive qualities and virtues of another person, your positive feelings towards that person are increased. Look for the good. Focus on the good. And you'll think good about that person. Rabbi Noah Weinberg, who was the founder of Eshah Torah, said something beautifully. Love is the pleasure of seeing the good in another person. Excellent. Again, love is the pleasure... Of seeing the good in another person. I was single at the time and I felt that this was going to be very easy for me. Someone writes. I tend to see the good in people and I was certain that when I would get married, I would automatically see the good qualities and traits of my future spouse. When I met the person I chose to marry, I saw so many positive qualities that I was even more certain that I would always keep my focus on on the good qualities. And it would just keep growing. About four years after we got married, when cleaning for Pesach, I found the notes that I had taken during classes, and I came across the sentence, love is the pleasure of seeing the good of another person. To me, right at that moment, this was not at all the same sentence I had written at the time of the class. At that time, I felt a great sense of anticipation for the future. I was dedicated to putting this concept into practice. By now, I found that I was largely focusing on the mistakes, and faults of my spouse. I wasn't putting it into action. I kept thinking about what I didn't like about my spouse. What was annoying about my spouse. Now this sentence hit me like a slap in the face. The idea had made total sense to me when I first heard it four years ago. But now it even made more sense. But with experience, I knew that it wasn't going to be as easy as I had thought. I kept repeating the words, positive qualities. when I, Whenever I saw or thought about my spouse. I kept reminding myself of their dedication, their honesty, their hard work, their integrity, their responsibility. And what did my spouse do for me? Thousands of things. Whenever I needlessly thought about what wasn't done, I quickly asked the question, what am I grateful for? And I have a lot to be grateful for. One of the things I tell all my clients, and all my students, is to read the thank you card every day, and to make a list once of 50 things that you're grateful for and read that list every day. This is what I've been doing myself almost every day for the last 20 years. And it has an amazing effect as you start your day with gratitude. You focus on the good. It's one of the greatest ways to get God to give you what you pray for. Because He loves people who are grateful. And the worst sin in the world, we know clearly, was the sin of complaining. How do we know that? Because when the spies came back, And had nothing but negative to say about Eretz Yisrael, Hashem said, "You complain tonight for no reason. I will now make this night the night of complaining for the rest of the history of the world, otherwise known as B'Av. There is no worse sin in the world than complaining. Nothing gets under Hashem's skin worse, literally, than when people complain. So I tell this to young couples. I tell them to write this idea on a piece of paper and put it into the Yom Kippur maghzor. So every year they can review it. I am interested, I'm looking only in the good of my spouse, or the dating partner. This way they remember it every year, when it's time, I mean on Yom Kippur. Some people find it easier to focus on their complaints, about other people in general, and their spouse. They keep building up their database of resentment. They repeat to themselves over and over again what they dislike about their spouse and the stressful things that they've said to them or done to them. The list keeps growing. As they themselves build up resentment, they talk and act in ways that further elicit even more negative words and behaviors. You know, it exits itself on. It becomes like a snowball. And the negative list keeps growing and getting worse and faster. So why don't we try doing the opposite? Write an appreciation list of the good things that your spouse does and reflects. Every time your spouse says or does something you appreciate, write it down. Keep rereading the list. And feed off that list. Let it nourish you during bad times of the marriage or the dating courtship. As you focus on the positive, you'll notice things that you previously had taken for granted and overlooked. And your positive feelings will create an atmosphere in which your spouse will say and do more positive things. Mitzvah goreit mitzvah, right? Avon goreit avon. One mitzvah leads to another mitzvah. And the opposite. One sin escalates into another one. So if we can induce better quality behavior, we'll then lead to even more good quality behavior. I once heard a father bless his son who was about to get married. I bless you, you and your wife should always see each other with the eyes of a shotgun. A shatran always sees the good in every potential chassan and kala. Whether the motive is the pleasure of making a shidduch, or getting paid shatchan geld, professional fees, a shatchan is an artist at seeing virtues. No virtue is too small to magnify, because they're trying to sell that shidduch. And no fault is too big to minimize. In order that you should have a joyous and harmonious marriage, may you both do the same, and look at each other with the eyes of a shatchan. Which reminds us of the story of the professional shatchan who approached a young man and told him, I have a wonderful suggestion of a young lady who would make a fantastic wife for you. That sounds good, said the young man. Who we talking about? Who is she? As soon as the shatchan mentioned her name, the young man explained, Ah, you're just making fun of me. Of course not, the shatchan said defensively. What objections do you have? The fellow said, she's blind. Said the shatchan, that's a virtue, not a fault. She won't see what you're doing and how you look, so she won't have any complaints about you. If you fix or paint something and it's not a perfect job, she won't notice it, said the young man. But she's mute. That's another virtue, argued the shatran. She won't say anything to you, and you won't have to listen to her talking nonsense. She certainly can't yell and scream at you, said the young man. But she has an awful limp. That's also a virtue, the shatran explained. If you want to leave the house, she won't be able to run after you. Complained the young man. But she's hunchbacked. You're not perfect either," said the Shachem. You'd be married by now if you were. You should really be able to tolerate one little fault which is trivial compared to all of her virtues. Look how they sell. Common goals. When two people know that they have common goals and are partners in reaching their goals, they are a team. It's all about I and you becoming a we. The success of one is the success of the other. Both members of the team encourage each other. And you should be able to see these subtle things when you're dating. You certainly want to be able to see them when you're married. There are many ways that you and your dating partner or spouse are partners. Your partners are fulfilling your life's mission. Each one might have a different role to play, but together you will help each other fulfill that mission. And one of the things you should be asking yourself when you're dating is will the person that I am going out with help me to become the best me that I could become? Will they help me realize my best potential? You are partners in bringing the Shekhinah, which is Hashem's presence into your home. You are partners in serving God, in Torah, in doing mitzvahs, in doing kind acts. You are partners in raising a family. You are partners in Midos development. And there's no greater lab in the world to become the best you than in the framework of marriage. I spoke last week in the city to an audience of about 150 people. Most there were 40 and above, single. I said, you're never going to see the best of you. You have no one to share an apartment with. You don't have to worry about someone getting in your way. You can do whatever you want, whenever you want to. There's no 3 a.m. feedings. So you're never tested. And if you're never tested, you're never improved. Because it's all about building your muscles and you have to have a weight to be able to become stronger. That weight is the person who is Ezer Kinegdon. She's your helper. He's your helper. But they're also they oppose you. They oppose you in order to bring out the greatness in you. Let's if, to purify you, like silver. You are partners in creating a meaningful and emotionally fulfilling life. It's so painful to observe a husband and a wife acting towards each other as opponents, when they could view themselves as mutual partners in a great project. You build your marriage when you see your spouse as a partner whose interests are your interests and whose concerns are your concerns. A psychotherapist spoke to a couple who felt that they were so different from one another they didn't have any common goals. He first asked one, then he asked the other, Would you like to live a happy life? Both the husband and wife replied, Yes, very much so. Great. I commented. This is your common goal. Let's see how you both can treat each other in a way that will give each of you a happy life. They both said that they hadn't looked at it in that way, and yes, it made sense that they had that in common. I could like, I'd like to help my spouse live a happy life. I told them, you both have a lot more in common than you think. You both want to live a Torah way of life. You both need to breathe and eat. You both want to raise a family. Compared to what you have in common, your differences are petty. Spend an entire week trying to find more things that you have in common, and keep a real list of those findings. When they spoke to me a week later, they said that they were amazed at how much they had in common. They were amazed at how much similarities they had. When they prepared for Shabbos, they were both viewed it as a joint venture to observe Hashem's day of rest. They realized that they were both children of the Creator. They had a common ancestor, Adam and Chava, Noah, Avram and Sarah. They couldn't wait to find even more things that they had in common. Case. I was eaten up with jealousy and envy. My spouse was okay, but not everything that I wished for. Every time I heard about the positive qualities of someone else who just became engaged, I felt more than a tinge of jealousy. I was consumed with envy for other people who I felt had better partners than I did. I went to an elderly rabbi who was known to be an elevated scholar. He listened to my story non-judgmentally and with total acceptance and compassion. Then he said to me, Each individual has a unique mission in this world. Very important lesson, ladies and gentlemen. Only you have your unique task to fulfill. People are not jealous of the eyeglasses of someone else. Each person needs glasses that are appropriate for their eyes, their prescription. So too each person has a marriage partner who is exactly what he or she needs for his or her life mission in this world. Your own accomplishments are independent of what anyone else has or does. So he told us, carry out your mission in this world with simcha, with joy. This joy is an aspect of loving God, who in in his infinite wisdom has given you what is for your ultimate, eternal, best interest. So I left inspired by this thought. I can't say I was able to integrate it immediately, but little by little this concept became integrated into my everyday thinking. Case number two. All through high school and seminary, I was more introverted than most of the other girls I knew. I was told by my parents, my teachers, and my friends, you must become more outgoing if you ever expect to get married. You're just too quiet. Deep down I said to myself, I know that Hashem will find me a, a groom, a Hassan who will appreciate my love for being quiet, for more silence. I once heard that an introvert is someone with such a rich inner life that he or she doesn't have such a strong need for others. I plan to marry a super learner, a masmid, which we say in Hebrew someone who's very diligent in his learning very serious learner we would both share a love for Torah his Torah study, and I would do everything I could to prevent disturbances while he was engaging in his Torah scholarship I mentioned this to a couple of people and they said, you're dreaming you're a dreamer it's almost impossible to find anyone as you pictured I called the rabbi up who I thought might be sympathetic and I asked him if my plans are fantasy or realistic He validated my position by telling me, Most guys will not be suitable for you as you are now. But you only need one person in order to get married. As I always tell my students and my clients, you just need one. The Chavit Chaim's son wrote that his father would praise his wife as being the source of his success in Torah scholarship. She took care of all the material needs without involving him. They owned the store. She ran the grocery store while he learned. His marriage in Torah was a partnership, and she was an equal partner to all of his successes. The person I called told me that he once attended an entire day of lectures given by nine rabbis. It was for chassanim, grooms, and newly married men. Over 200 young men attended. The rabbis were from different backgrounds. Hasidic, Sephardic, Litvish, Israeli, English-speaking, Spanish-speaking. One speaker said that it's important for a couple to talk together each day for at least 15 minutes, which is absolutely true. Another speaker said, that's not our way. When you're totally immersed in Torah study... Your wife will respect you and you'll have Shalom Ba'is. Finally, someone suggested the man who eventually would become my husband. He was the biggest masmid in his yeshiva. That means he was the most diligent student in his yeshiva. He was friendly. He had a healthy personality. He didn't waste time. He told the Shachan that he wanted a quiet girl who wouldn't merely tolerate his constant devotion to Torah study, but shared the ideals that he had. Even on our first meeting, he told me Torah thoughts. He told me how his ideal was discussing words of fear of God with his wife. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. We are now married many years, and I greatly appreciate my husband's total devotion to Torah study. He appreciates my enabling him to learn without unnecessary disturbances. He shares Torah thoughts with me, and we study from books together on a regular basis. Because we are both equally satisfied with each other, we are free from conflicts and quarrels. We feel as joyous together, as other couples we spend much more time speaking to each other. The Torah tells us that a husband and wife are considered as one unit. As the Ramban states, through the sanctification of marriage, a husband and wife become the closest of relatives. This oneness is even stronger than being partners. In a regular partnership, you care about the welfare of your partner, but the partner is still separate from you. But when you see yourself as one, however, there's a total sense of unity. When a husband and wife view themselves as one, the pain and pleasure of both are important to each other. You see yourself as a single unit. Having this consciousness will automatically make you close to each other. You're both considered the total welfare of each other. You're concerned about it. And the famous story, Arya Levine was the chief rabbi of Jerusalem. His wife's foot was bothering her. They went to the doctor. And when they finally got to see the doctor, he asked the rabbi what's going on. He goes, our foot is hurting. Our. Not hers. Not my wife's. Our. It's one unit, one entity. Kufichad, One body, one heart. Imagine sitting down to drink a cup of coffee. You're a bit tired and you're expecting the coffee to give you a little bit of a push, a lift, and revive you in the middle of your day. Or you might not be a coffee drinker, but on a special day, you indulge in a cup of coffee. As you take the first sip, you barely contain yourself from spitting it out. Instead of containing sugar it has salt. The big question is, will you get angry at the person who made the mistake? Regardless of your temper, the one instance when you wouldn't lose it is when you yourself are the one who put in the salt instead of sugar. Even all you had to do was read the word salt and printed in a large letter on the container. When you view yourself and your spouse as one, just as you would not criticize yourself for that mistake of putting salt in your own coffee, so too you shouldn't say anything derogatory to your spouse. Because She's you. And you're her, so you're one. And if you do feel a strong need to say something, how about, I'm grateful to you for usually putting in sugar, but this time you did salt. Start with a sweet gesture. Case. We were married a number of years with many ups and downs. My wife and I had questions about our compatibility. We weren't sure if we were right for each other. While we knew that we would stay married, we both viewed ourselves as two separate people who are destined to spend their lives together. If that was our life challenge and our tikkun in this world, so be it. We accepted God's will for us. We tried going to counseling a few times. But many, any changes we made were just temporary. I hear this all the time. Someone advised us to speak to a Torah scholar who would check the compatibility of our names. I was reluctant because I didn't grow up with this idea and it felt awkward check names to see if there's compatibility. But we figured that it couldn't hurt. The worst that would happen is that we would be advised to change our names. Then we would ask our rabbi for advice. My wife and I were told that according to our names, we were a match. We both smiled. That's nice, I said to myself. But we still have the same issues and they're not resolved. Then we spoke to someone who asked us what held us back from viewing ourselves as being one single unit. What's holding you back from feeling like you're one? I said, we're so different from each other. Of course you are. Every couple is. By the way, every couple married will always have 10 points of disagreement forever. But they can have 1,000 points of agreement. So it's okay. Of course you are. Every couple is different from each other. The only question is, to what degree? You're still one unit. Isn't your right hand different from your right ear, he asked? Certainly. But aren't they all part of the same body? Yes. We realize that some couples have a much easier time viewing themselves as one unit. Others find this more difficult. But the Torah view is that as soon as you get married, you are one unit. Try this experiment, he told us. For an entire week, both of you view each other as if you're one single unit. See yourselves as one. Make a mental note of how this improves your interactions. If one of you suffers, your entire unit suffers. If one of you needs something, the entire system needs it. Most couples who try this find that they automatically feel much more careful about not doing insane things that cause pain. Because they'll think twice about causing pain because they're part of one unit. And you wouldn't want to hurt yourself. And when we reported back to the rabbi after a week, we were able to report that it was one of the best weeks we ever had in our lives. The rabbi then told us, every time you enter the house, you pass the mezuzah. It's a reminder that Hashem is one, and He made you as one. It's a beautiful thought. The mezuzah reminds us Hashem is one and you are one. Let the mezuzah always remind you that you and your spouse are one unit. We're not always able to maintain this awareness. But if you ever get off track, remember you're one. And you always remember, what can I do for you? That's what you should ask your spouse. Thank you so much for everyone coming tonight. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.